1: Just go to indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: This is Recode Media Peter Kafka. That is me live on tape, this time back in New Jersey. I'm going back and forth from New Jersey to Brooklyn. I'm informing you of the travelogue every step of the way. Very excited to have be Thurston on with us what do we call you, Baratunde? Comedian, podcaster, activist? I feel like I've asked this question to other folks before. What do you want to pick? So Baratunde
3: works. Uh, that's my name. And I, I definitely uh, answer to that. And I, I make media that informs, entertains, and moves people. So you could
2: call me a media
3: maker human.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for making media with us. Yeah. Um, your current project is How to Citizen which is a podcast, but also kind of a lecture series and kind of a class and an instructional uh, audio instruction, I guess, to, on how to be what? Beyond a citizen. What, what, is, what does that mean? So this show is about us uh, reclaiming
3: the power that we have in a democracy uh, as the people. The power should reside with us. And uh, a lot of us are feeling overwhelmed right now. A lot of us are feeling exhausted. And uh, we are usually given one way to... Uh, flex our power in this system, and that is to vote. And that is essential, but there's so many other ways to show up. So this is about reclaiming that word citizen, leaning into the verb version rather than the legal status, and that verb leading to participation, leading to relationships with other people, leading to putting the common good above just the solo human self-interest, and understanding our power and how we can use it.
2: I listened to your first two shows. They're good. They're, they're also heavy, right? I think a lot of us are sort of familiar with the basic, like, as you said, like, here's go vote. And then if you're a politics junkie, you might listen to a show like uh, the Crooked Media guys put out. Uh, this sort of assumes that you are engaged politically. You want to be more engaged. And you're sort of down for an hour long discussion about kind of weighty, weighty and intellectual topics. Who's the audience for this? The
3: first two are a little more. Quote unquote intellectual, but I think each of these series is focused on highlighting people actually doing work, not just intellectualizing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have people who have led organizations, have fixed something, or improved conditions in their community. So the audience for this is people who want to feel better at the end of a show rather than just angry or depressed, which is what a lot of news slash political slash government themed media ends up doing to us. Um, The audience for this show are people who want to be given something to do. And it's a promise that we've made to our audience that we will always give you ways to channel this energy productively, Uh, other than screaming into a pillow, which, no shade, can be a very productive use of time, especially if you scream from the diaphragm. It's like a good abdominal workout. But I think there are some other types of things that we can do to strengthen Even our own neighborhoods, our own households, our own communities. So for folks who are looking for something to do, for folks who are looking to feel better rather than worse, for folks who are exhausted by the tenor of our political environment and the media that covers it, uh, How To Citizen with Baratunde is a show for you.
2: I'm doing this a lot now. I'm sort of backing into explaining who I'm talking to. So by the <laughs> end of the show, people will understand who you are. But since we're here, I just want to talk a little bit more about sort of audience and distribution, which I think is, well, it's fascinating to me, right? And and whether you want to reach people who already sort of know you and know what your story is, or whether you expect this to reach an audience who's never heard of you. And then I think a lot about this sort of with politics as well right are you do you intend to speak to an audience that sort of is aligned with you who knows what Allyship, am I pronouncing ship correctly? Ally Ally ship. There,
3: there you go. ship is, is the worship of women named Allie, which I'm sure the Allies of the world
2: really appreciate. Maybe it's a fine ship. <laughs> or, you know, people who who have never heard of you, yeah. people who heard of your TED Talk, maybe people who went to the Code Conference last year, saw you spoke there. How do you think about sort of, do you, do you want to reach people who are on board, or do you want to sort of take someone who is on a different path and say, no, 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 you should be thinking about this? I think okay. it's harder than ever to pull that off
3: many answers to that. It's not a simple binary of like, I want people who already know me. And I don't think anyone who makes media just wants to reach people who already know them. Mm-hmm. That is a-
2: You describe yourself as semi-fake. <laughs> your yeah. I mean, I,
3: I I do my own grocery shopping and no one cares who I am when I'm buying that almond milk. So by that definition, I'm mostly unknown. Mm-hmm. And most of the humans on this planet have no idea who I am. So huge growth opportunity, Peter, huge growth opportunity. Um, this show is is- Definitely for people who are familiar with me and my book, How to Be Black, my TED Talk on Deconstructing Racism, or the institutions that I have worked for in media, The Onion and The Daily Show. And that's a nice first step for folks who are like, they're just on the day journey, please come to this next stop on the journey. But I think it is much more for people who don't know me, because that's where That's most people in the country, that's most people in the world, Mm -hmm. but who are aligned with some of the things I said earlier, who want to be asked to do something. I think there's a lot of media that we make that gets made that um, assumes people can't handle complexity, can't handle nuance, don't want to be given any labor. And I don't assume that uh, about people. I'm willing to be proven wrong, but I think it's a good start. Politically, I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive. I will be voting uh, Democratic because I'm also sane and believe in small R, republic, and small D democracy above my party affiliation. This show will find a natural home amongst, you know, self-described progressives and liberals, somewhat obviously. However, it is not exclusively made for them. And one of the reasons that we've partnered with iHeartMedia to... Distribute this podcast is because they reach a much broader set of the United States yep. than some of the more liberal oriented distribution networks. And the act of citizening, which is something we are trying to remind ourselves is an act, is a verb, must be done across and between and among people of difference, of political difference, of racial difference, of geographic difference. Of geographic difference. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point of having a country?
2: After the 2016 election, there was a lot, and we talked about it a lot on this show. The idea that media, media elite, coastal media—we didn't understand who a Trump voter was, and we should all try to find those people and talk to them because they were mysterious. And there was a lot of reporting about that. I, I found I found a Trump supporter and brought him on the show, and there was a lot of. Like, Did you get a prize China.
3: for that? Was there like a is there like a leaderboard in, in the media circus? I found a Trump. Supporter, what, what what possibly could have lured them? What what possibly could they be voting for?
0: I
2: spent the next couple of years waiting for him it was Ken Cursen to say I, I I have made a terrible mistake. I supported him, but I, it turns out I, I, I was totally misguided. Nope, he, he's posting photos of, of himself and Ivanka and and uh, I guess it was Herschel Walker on the on the White House lawn last week. Right, right. It, that super spreader event. Yes. Yeah. No, he didn't he didn't learn. Hey, Ken. Anyway, I was thinking about sort of that effort and a bunch of people, I think, spent a bunch of time well-intentionally, well, in a well-intentioned way trying to figure stuff out. And now I look at what's going on now and it looks like the country is more split than ever. Um, Donald Trump is actively trying to make that split more divisive, right? He's, He's actively encouraging people to go confront protesters. Is there any point in a sort of political media effort to sort of convert someone at this point? Or are we just in, just stuck and it's just a matter of getting people who think the same way you do to go vote and that's as much as you can do? Or can you actually change your mind at this point? That's a very, 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 very long-winded question. My apologies.
3: That's all right. I think I understood it. And there is always a possibility of conversion. Um, and of getting someone to completely change their mind and their orientation. But I want to be very humble about that at this stage in this perverse game. We have an election coming up in weeks, and the people who are proudly saying, I support this president, have had ample opportunity to see who he is, how he behaves, and what he stands for. For someone to say, I am into law and order and support this president, is a very inconsistent stance to take for a very unlawful commander-in-chief. Acknowledgedly so, impeachedly so. Like, so my own use of energy with respect to this election is not about trying to find the mythological, anthropologically sound Trump supporter and convince them that their whole identity that they have committed themselves to, that the proverbial Fifth Avenue shooting that they co-signed on, that is almost literally happening, is wrong. Instead, um, for me and this election, it is about shifting the tone and the tenor and the power uh, and how we wield it, and that's turnout. And that is we know that there's more of us. There's more people who believe in small-D democracy than those who want authoritarianism, whether they still use a Republican label or not. So if you've got people in your life who you know are down for that, to continue this experiment in a sound way and a sane way then you must vote for Joe Biden uh, that is pretty obvious and then we can get to a point where we can have fun arguments about tax policy i miss that i miss that. i don't want i don't want to be engaged in debate about whether someone who shoots up a protest is a thug or engaged in self defense because they're a supporter of this president that cheapens me that cheapens all of us so let us get to a point where we can talk about marginal tax rate again and argue about the size of government, but we're not we're not at that stage right now. so for me, it is about all of us speaking as members of this society uh, and those who are eligible to vote as voters in this society that we don't co-sign on that and we have to sign a new declaration uh, of our dependence on each other and our belief in this system of government and self-government.
2: This is very heavy stuff again. maybe I, I kind of feel like I should start smoking again so I could. I could just crack a cigarette at this point, (laughs) but instead let's talk about comedy and how you got to the point where you could, you could have a stage like this. Um, I think I met you when you were at the onion for a minute and you were a digital guy there. That's my official title, Digital Guy. <laughs> digital Guy at The Onion. I was kind of weird because The Onion was already digital. But um, what was the plan? You went to Harvard. What was the plan? I want to be? I want to become this version of Barratundi or was there a different plan at some point? Uh, graduated college
3: in 1999, and I thought I might go into journalism. Uh, and in fact, I'd had an internship set up for a, a summer at the Washington Post, my hometown paper, which I had to cancel because of a repetitive strain injury. I couldn't type, literally, and you can't really journalism without being able to type.
2: Yeah, that was the old days, now you can you just well, talk. Yeah. <laughs>
3: you can have your uh, smart speaker do the transcription for you. But no, I, so I did theater that summer instead. Uh, I graduated and I thought maybe I'll do teaching, maybe I'll do business, whatever that meant, something in technology. And I spent years in the minds of uh, Microsoft PowerPoint and Excel as a business strategy consultant. Uh, I worked in the telecommunications industry, building business cases, doing research, advising corporations uh, about how they could acquire more capital uh, within this burgeoning, newly deregulated industry. Taught me a lot about media, taught me a lot about business modeling, taught me a lot about PowerPoint, which I'm a beast at now. And uh, it was not my life's work or mission and uh, making a publicly traded company even, Uh, more publicly tradable, I thought I could do more. I know I could do
2: more. Did you know that all along or did you have to have a revelation like, oh, this is not for me?
3: It was, um, I knew that I was learning something in it. I also knew that I didn't like want to run a major telecoms company (laughs) from the start, but I was really big into tech and it was fascinating to me to understand the behind the scenes of the infrastructure and the business. I like nerded out on it. So in some ways, It satisfied me as an education and it put me in some really challenging and, um, I had to be, I had to share ideas and present things to people who I hadn't been around before, uh, to board people and CXO people. Mm -hmm. And that was valuable. That was valuable. But yeah, I knew pretty early, this wasn't my life's work. And all while, all along while I was doing that, I was doing this stand-up thing at night.
2: You were actual stand-up?
3: Yeah, yeah, I, I started with writing. I started writing a satirical newsletter uh, my freshman year in college, continued after, continued while I was doing this corporate thing. I was blogging while I was doing this corporate thing at Jack and Jill Politics.
2: And Harvard famously is a, is a pipeline for comedy, right? We you know, I assume you were aware of that or were you taking advantage of that? Yeah, well, I didn't, I mean,
3: I didn't go there for that and I wasn't really, yeah. when I was there, I was not in that pipeline, right. uh, the, the, the Lampoon, the publication. I was not a part of the Lampoon. I was a part of the newspaper, The Crimson. And we were notorious rivals for pranks and all kinds of other things. I did have a column in the newspaper in which I used humor, you know, um, and I, I used humor in all of my opinion columns at the time. And I did a lot of work on stage and I had this email newsletter, which was satirical by design. So I was practicing comedy from that early stage. But I didn't jump into it in full until I could, I felt like I could afford to. And, you know, I left that school with a lot of debt, a lot of debt, even with the scholarships and the grants and the PELs and all that. And so part of the other reason for taking this corporate job was to pay for this private education. Mm -hmm. And so once I had gotten a bit more clear of that and got an opportunity to move to New York City from Boston, which I took so gladly, I arrived in New York City still doing the corporate thing, but knowing I was trying to set myself up to get back to this more creative media-making arts thing. I'm like, publishing is here. I want to do books. Comedy clubs are here. I'm tired of commuting on the Chinatown bus, which I was doing sometimes on a weekly basis from Boston. So it wasn't a single moment. you
2: knew you wanted to have a public... You wanted to be on a stage talking to a crowd of people.
3: Yeah, I knew that I was a communicator, a performer an expresser, you know, and I, and I knew that took the form of writing because I, I started blogging in 2000 and I bought my domain name in 1998 and I used it to say stuff. And I was on like early Usenet news groups and Metafilter commenting and getting in debates and uh, wrangling. And then I had, you know, through childhood always been on stage in some form, but it wasn't as obvious as like, I want to go be an actor. It never took, that form it was uh, it evolved and it came a lot out of out of politics. I've been writing a lot of things about politics on this political blog, and then even my standup and my humor at the time was heavily like news based. I read all this news. I might as well use it to try to say something that fits in this you know underlit, undercompensated venue that I find myself trapped in, which also serves Chinese food. Uh, which is a strange common denominator in so many, at least early, comedy clubs.
2: And my perception of you is a guy who melds, and maybe not even be accurate anymore, but melds sort of a background in tech, with comedy, with progressive politics, and then is often being either called upon or asked to, or, or, or volunteering to talk about race and how that affects all of that. Was that kind of where you saw that Did you sort of imagine that was going to be your brand and identity, or is that something that you gradually work toward? I
3: imagined it, and it felt the most real when I took this job at The Onion. It was 2007. They were looking for a politics editor. I applied for that job. They discovered I knew all these things about technology, that I had my own website, that I've been blogging and making podcasts. Way back then, Mm -hmm. I was podcasting. And they're like, oh, we... We kind of need like a web editor, someone to really upgrade our web presence and the way we do all that. Can you do that too? I was like, bet. Yeah, I'm, I'm down. And so I got like, they got two jobs for the price of one. And I described that The Onion was like the greatest job I ever had because it was the first place that let me be a political person, a technology person, and a comedy person all under literally one roof. And before I had to separate those things, I was like, secretly a comedy person at night or anonymously through my pseudo pseudonymous blog and that's where I could be political but then I was doing some of the tech stuff in the corporate world but they didn't want all that other stuff Mm -hmm. and unless it awkwardly served them like when my boss told our conservative clients oh you know baratunde does stand up he just did a show last night and these really nice conservative gentlemen from Dallas Oh yeah. Tell us a joke. What'd you joke about? (laughs) I was like, you, thanks a lot, Rory. Thank you. (laughs) But yeah. So, so the onion (laughs) was the (laughs) place that,
2: (laughs) yeah. yeah,
3: It let me be all three without having to like hide a part of myself from some other part of myself. And that's when it gelled like, oh, I'm all these things and it's possible to be all these things and not struggle with it. I could just be myself.
2: And do you ever feel like, okay, that's, this is great and I, I, this is a good groove for me, but what if I want to do a different thing that doesn't sync with any of this? What if I decide I'm really into cooking or whatever it is and I, I want to incorporate that? Or maybe I want, you know, uh, you make the joke, but I, I don't want to be funny anymore. I want to be serious or whatever version of it is. Do you feel like, no, this, is, this, is, this pays and it's good and I should be happy doing this? Or do you have the capacity, do you have the, the optionality, that's the, that's the business word, to try other stuff?
3: I have always felt free to be myself. I have felt constrained and resisted by existing models, which wanted to force me to be something that I wasn't or tell me this is how you have to be you. Mm -hmm. And partly that is a failure on the part of institutions and systems. Partly it's just a natural, it's, it's called growth. And I had to figure out who I am. And so, yeah, I leaned hard into stand-up, and I was trying to grind on all these clubs all over New England, Brattleboro, Vermont, Worcester. Like, I know all these weird towns, beautiful towns full of amazing and beautiful people, because I thought I'm going to be a stand-up comic (laughs) for a while. From this distance, at 42, I I am not a stand-up comedian. I am a comedian, I do deploy humor, I use it, I'm practiced at it, I've written a book based on it, I weave it into my very serious talks, but it is a part of my identity and a part of how I accomplish what I want, which isn't just to make people laugh. Um, that, That is like a service function for me much of the time and where I'm also trying to communicate ideas that have value to me, that I think should have value to you, or I'm trying to learn, right? I'm in dialogue with someone and it's a helpful diffuser of tension and it allows them to hear me more and me to hear hear them more. Uh, So I don't any longer feel so constrained, but there are definitely still moments where, you know, I'll give you an example. I was making a TV show years ago that didn't end up getting made or we would be having a different conversation. And I kept getting notes from executives it gotta add more jokes. You gotta add more jokes. It was like they were looking for a a quota, you know, there was like affirmative action for jokes. And it was a quota system, and there was a certain like JPM. There was like a joke per minute that they had figured out in their mental model and their algorithm of what a show meant for them and their network and what they thought their audience demanded, that I had to contort myself to try to do. And it fell false. And it also made me doubt myself. I was like, am I, am I funny? I, if I only have three jokes per minute instead of six, am I half as funny as the person who does six? But that's, that wasn't the point of the show. And so I, I had to re-find myself and rediscover myself and say, thank you. And I tried it their way and it fell false. And I had to learn like, no, I'm, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And my audience is going to find me and I'm going to find them. And this is a dance that we're in. And it's a dance that evolves over time. But there's not a hard and fast rule. And I, I learned in that moment to just know what I know and try to behave from there rather than let somebody tell me, this is how you have to be funny. This is how much funny you have to be to qualify. It's like, we're just trying to make a, a really good show here. And isn't the point for people to be engaged and watch it and enjoy it and tell other people about it? So let's, let's cut back on the... Joke Quotas.
2: We're going to interrupt this conversation with Baratuni for just a minute so we can hear from a fine sponsor. We'll be right
0: back. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
1: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
2: And we're back with Baratunde. We are at a time where it seems literally everyone has a TV show because Amazon, Apple, Netflix, AT&T, throwing billions and throwing 1000000000s and billions. Do you ever get the itch to go, I should try this again? Maybe there's a Quibi show in your future where you think I should try another version of this because there's got to be someone out there who is going to sync up with your version of, of how many jokes you need to have in a, in a minute. I've been a part
3: of so many attempts at shows. I have hosted several shows. I've hosted shows with Discovery Science Channel. I've hosted shows with AOL. I've done stuff with PBS and TED, and uh, and I've done a lot of digital things. This pandemic, this coronavirus moment, also was a great moment for me to remember myself. And I've m- done the meetings. I've gotten so much free water. Water. Wrapped. Yeah in dinosaur carcasses, right? Wrapped in plastic, wrapped in, in climate-
2: Need water, need water, of water, of water.
3: And so, yeah, so I've, I've, I've drank the Kool-Aid in the version of climate criminal water bottles. And COVID put put a stop to all that chasing and meeting and convincing people that I have value. And I just started making a show. At the very beginning, it was Sunday, March 15th. I started making this show called Live on Lockdown twice a week, an hour each. I'm up to 38 episodes of that show.
2: And that's, you're putting that on Periscope, right? That's on Twitter? It's evolved. In the beginning,
3: I had a Zoom version of the show, which was much more bringing other people on. I could see their faces. Mm -hmm. And then I had an IG live, uh, Instagram live version. The show was more of a monologue, but I've also always taken questions and using that question feature. Currently, uh, the way that show runs is I simulcast it. Okay, uh, And so I'm on all the networks. I hit it on Twitch, on YouTube, on Facebook, on IG, and Peter, most amazingly to me, LinkedIn. And it's like full circle because I got the streaming privileges to address LinkedIn. It's like a very <laughs> limited test run of who they give the LinkedIn keys to, the media keys to. And it's like I'm back because LinkedIn is a professional space. Yeah, I'm like, should I be wearing a polo shirt? Do I need a blazer? Network, network, network. And it's funny because like it takes me back to that first job where I was feeling this separation of myself. Well, this is a professional environment. I should probably be offering people value. What's my value proposition for this LinkedIn video? And it's like, nah, I'm just gonna do me. And I'm gonna talk about the Democratic convention and the Republican convention and, and people are digging it. So I, the point though is that I like wrote that show, directed that show, edited that show, subtitled that show for accessibility all by myself asking no permission from anyone. And it was good practice. I developed an audience, I honed my voice, and it's helped me make two podcasts this summer with iHeart. We're having a moment all about pandemic and revolution, and now How to Citizen with Baratunde, both of which are much stronger because I wasn't begging somebody for the opportunity to be myself. So
2: it's both. Do you imagine that when, when, we, when we can travel again, when we can go to other countries, when you can go to LA Oof. and take general meetings, Oof. that, that you'll, you'll go back to that and try to get someone to give you a show? Or, or do you sort of like this model you're doing now where it's kind of DIY and you mostly control the distribution?
3: It's, um, to, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from our model of education in the time of COVID, it's a hybrid model. I don't like the story, however, of trying to convince someone to give me a show. That's just bad grammar for like the way I want to see myself in this world. I would love uh to find people who want to make a show with me, and I'm working on that, you know
2: that's it's always it's
3: not like I'm on the outside. Trying to bang in and get inside. Some of our people right?
2: listen to this podcast, so maybe maybe we'll help out.
3: Yeah. So so there's always things in progress, and I think even the industry recognizes we don't just give shows out. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you're, you're um some of them do. Some of them still have that. <laughs> some, some of them still them
2: do. Too. I've seen a couple recently. Um,
3: yeah, I did. I did have a, of a meeting at Quibi, and I accidentally stole a mug from them. So every time I drink from this mug, uh, I think of Quibi. Which is like probably the most effective uh, marketing reminder of Quibi uh, that that I could have. It was uh, definitely an accident, though. I just walked out the building and realized, oh, I'm still holding, still holding this mug. So I got a I got a mug out of Quibi, and that was fun.
2: I bought a couple shows from my employer, so I got a little <laughs> more than a mug, I think. Um, I want to ask. We've, we've I've, I've alluded to it a couple times. Uh, this TED Talk you gave last year, which is still I think the thing that many people know you for the most can't call it prescient because as you talk about the, the idea of, of of white people uh, reacting to black people by summoning the police to handle sort of any dispute um is not a new idea uh to abuse the sort of the police power is not a, is, is was not a new idea that said when we cut to this spring and we had amy cooper yelling at someone in central park and then we had george floyd I'm assuming that a lot of people sort of dug that clip up again and said, oh, this is really resonant. Did you get a lot of sort of requests for comment and, and we, we want to hear what you have to say because of that TED talk?
3: I absolutely did. Um, I delivered that talk in April 2019 at the big TED conference in Vancouver, and they put it online in May 2019. And in May 2020, I did a one year later retrospective through my newfound streaming powers mm-hmm. from my live from Highland Park, Los Angeles in my shed. Uh, and I restreamed the talk with commentary and Q and A. And it was a week later that Amy Cooper decided to manifest herself out of my Ted talk slides and into the real world and weaponize her access to state power. She tried to rain down hell on Christian Cooper. And that same day, Derek Chauvin slowly murdered George Floyd. So yeah, my talk has been made, sadly, more relevant because this country continues to remind all of us of the power structure, continues to remind us that some people matter more than others, continues to remind us who has the right to life, liberty, and a pursuit of happiness. And out of that resurgence of interest in in that talk, that's partly how the podcast We're Having a Moment was born it's like, what do I, what am I thinking now? How is this hitting me? What am I seeing? I've developed a bit of an update on that TED Talk. That's my current state of the union yeah. <laughs> about how I see all these things fitting together and where we might go. And the how the citizen thing is like me trying to channel that for myself, right? I like, it has lofty intellectual goals of driving civic engagement and reminding people we all have power, but selfishly, I'm just tired, man. Like I'm sad so much,
2: I am angry so much. Yeah, that was the thing watching watching your TED talk this year, thinking about what's happened and thinking, man, Baratundi has laid out convincingly how systemic this is, how this goes back hundreds of years. I'm sure that the people who watch that TED talk, 95% of them are, are sympathetic or more towards your argument and you cut to what's going on this year. I mean, Jacob Blake doesn't even really merit a headline at this point, right? We're spending more time talking about the kid from Kenosha or the kid from Illinois shooting people and whether he was a, a bigot or, or, or attacked by thugs. It made me sad, and it made me frustrated, and it made me feel sort of futile, right? Like, what if, if we could lay all this out, if we can explain to everyone, if we can open people's eyes through through the kind of work you've done, and we still end up sort of, not making any progress, and maybe we're going backwards, what are we to do? And I guess the answer is listen to your podcast, but that's, that's a little little flip, right? Uh, I don't mean it that way.
3: No, and I didn't, I didn't interpret it as flip. It's actually a, a very generous uh, comment, and it is the highest goal. I needed and still need a show that makes me feel better at the end of making it. I need a show to channel all of this rage, all of this depressive sadness into something constructive. And I know that just laying out facts doesn't cut it. We are human beings. We are not rational beings. We are much more emotional than rational. And we live in a world of stories more than tangible access to reality. We just know the world because of what somebody tells us about the world. And we wrap up our identities in the stories we've inherited. So to go to somebody who is at this stage convinced of this president's godliness of the QAnon reality of the world Mm -hmm. and have them admit that that is all a sham is literally self-destructive to the present self that they're attached to because they're wrapped in this poisonous blanket of a story. So we got to dig deeper than proving people wrong with data. Are you kidding me? No, we, we got we to gotta work. We got to do stuff. And partly I needed to hear the stories of people who've done that, who've actually made a difference. Don't tell me all these problems and then leave me hanging. Show me who's working on it and the impact they have had. How did they do it? What are the ingredients? And what I'm finding is a different kind of recipe, which is one, just show up. We are addicted to hearing about how unempowered we are. And we sit there and we take it. And we're told there's people with power and there's the rest of you. That is not how this works. That is not how this is supposed to work. So you show up, you build relationships with other people, right, you do things on behalf of everyone, not just yourself, because you see yourself in everyone, and you understand that you have power. I needed to hear that because I feel powerless as hell. I've been knowing this forever and it feels like it hasn't changed, but there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be some steps that we can take. So. It's big. It feels impossible. But that's just the size of the hole we've dug for hundreds
2: of years. It's a big hole. What do you think about not showing up? There was a moment last week where the uh, NBA players were considering not playing the rest of the season. I think it was about half a day, basically, uh, where where that was an an option on the table. They they, boy they boycotted or struck, and neither word is exactly correct, but they stopped playing for a couple of days, and there was a thought that maybe they would just stop playing altogether. And, and they've since rethought that, and they've gotten uh, uh, the NBA to sort of uh, turn the arenas over and make make them voting centers. What would you think if they just, if the players collectively said, no, we're, we're just not going to do the work, and we're going to sacrifice, we have a significant amount of money, and we're going to give some of that up right now?
3: I think that would be an incredible sign of commitment, dedication, leadership, and self-sacrifice. I don't know if I could do it. I don't judge them for not committing to that. That is like an entire league of Muhammad Ali's. Mm -hmm. It's huge. And I have appreciated the way these players have tried to show up and use the platforms they have and given the present and urgent opportunity to flex power with voting to make those spaces that are safe for us to exercise our democratic power. But I, I cannot imagine the pressure that these young men are under. We We put a lot of weight on them. You know, a lot of these men are very young. They're very talented at this thing that we have compensated them highly for. And many of us are expecting them to be the political leadership we feel we lack, to be the business leadership we feel we lack. And that's, that feels unfair to me. It feels unfortunate, but trying times are unfair to everyone. So not to let them off the hook, but to acknowledge the size of that hook is big. Yeah. Uh, It just, it just got
2: me thinking. And and there's a lot of reasons why I I can understand why they would continue to play. um, But sort of pulling We've talked mostly about showing up and voting and contributing, and the idea of sort of removing yourself from the conversation and using it through your absence as the power really struck me.
3: One of the reasons that this summer has been so intense and so meaningful is because the whole country had to watch Derek Chauvin slowly murder George Floyd because we had no basketball, we had no brunch. Both were canceled. There was one channel to tune into, and it was this legacy, this living legacy of a system of white supremacy. It was undeniable and irrefutable, and we had to look at it. And to force people to still look at it is a way of showing up and is very powerful. To deny us the distraction, the salve, uh, keeps us in that moment. It's hard
2: it's hard. hard. Right? We, I, I, I talked to w kamau bell a, a few weeks after yeah. and i said something like he said i'm you know he, he at the point he said i i'm surprised we're still talking about it frankly and mm-hmm. it's only because we're locked down and at the time i think there had been another uh officer involved shooting uh police shot another black man i think it was in atlanta he said well, that had kept it going but we don't want to be in a position where we need to have another black man killed on camera or shot on camera for this to perpetuate and also i think it has less effect, right? Jacob Blake was a big deal for some people and much less for other people at this point. Um, it, it, we've seen that show, right? We've, se- we've been watching that channel. We've seen that show. We're ready for something else. It's a, it's a natural human instinct.
3: And, and these movements move in cycles as well. The civil rights movement wasn't one persistent march and one gigantic fire hose and one crazy dog just biting everybody, like years. Mm-hmm. Years of work. And we look back with this distance from 2020, but with a hindsight that approaches like 2010 in its revisionist clarity and say Martin Luther King Jr. was a hero. He was hated. He was so hated that someone murdered him. You know what I mean? Like, I think we forget where that story ended with a man shot and killed. Mm -hmm. fighting peacefully for peace to end wars and have humane treatment of our workers and to have this nation live up to its fine, fine words. And he was on watch list from this government. And this government sat, sicked state power on protesters and rounded them up and jailed them and shot at them So, yeah, it's uh, none of this is easy and it's not surprising, but I don't think that the mere shift of attention away from this particular form of state violence or white supremacy or this brokenness that we have as a nation means it's all over. The work is happening and things happen in cycles and it's not always live streamed.
2: You've got two episodes of How to Citizen Out. Yeah. Uh, more are coming. Absolutely. That's, a, that's, a, that's an awkward, <laughs> that's an awkward segue towards the end of this show. <laughs> but um, thank you for your time. I don't have a pat way to end this interview, but I enjoyed it and I appreciate your time.
3: I appreciate yours too. Thanks for having me, Peter.
2: Thanks again to Baratuni for getting on the internet with us. Always wanted to chat with him. That was fun. Uh, Thanks again to Jelani and Joel, who produce and edit the show. Thanks again to our sponsors who let us bring you this show for free. Thanks to you guys for listening. This is Recode Media. We're back next week.